You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review's Northern Command on Monday afternoon, May the 13th. And I wish it would be Friday the 13th, but here we are to kick off a new weekend, a new week following the weekend. Hope you guys enjoyed uh, your Mother's Day weekend. I know here it was quite unique. Wow. Um, For the state of Maryland to be in the 40s and raining on Mother's Day. (laughs) I never remember that. So it's been pretty gloomy here. Rain, rain, rain all the time. Um, Where's that global warming when we need it? But here we are. Tough weekend also because the kids are just cooped up. And when they don't get aired out, they're just animals. So it was a little bit challenging for me, but I hope you guys enjoyed your weekend. Um, Surprising stuff over the weekend, by the way, you know, pleasant information I want to share with you because, you know, I view this as the show of all of us. This would be nothing if you guys wouldn't listen, as well as the fact that many of you help me send me very informative emails, you know, stories that I wouldn't otherwise see that prove many of the points we're trying to make here. I want to share you share with you the good news. If you haven't seen, President Trump did retweet this show on Saturday. He you know tweeted like forty different things or retweeted forty different things, and one of them was a tweet of mine of Friday's show on how Congress considers everything to be an emergency except for our border, and he retweeted that. So I mean, we're getting on his radar. It's a good thing. And I happen to know he's well aware of our work. So we're making progress. But if you think that means I'm just going to stand down and bask in the, in the glory of having the president, president uh, you know, look at my stuff, that I'm going to suddenly not give him constructive criticism, you're wrong because <laughs> I'm going to keep doing that. Because it proves our point that we need to be doing this that he is receptive to our message. He's open to it. He's frustrated by what's going on. But at the same time, he's got a lot of jerks in his administration that are doing schizophrenic policies, and he's not being consistent. He's got to get tougher. You know, um, one of the things that's the downfall of a lot of our people is that the minute they get the president's attention... They just become cheerleaders without trying to actually score points. We don't need cheerleaders. We need quarterbacks. We need running backs. We need wide receivers. We need to actually score points. Right now, we're getting clobbered on a lot of different issues. But nonetheless, it is good. And... um. You know, I'm really, really glad that the president's onto it. Obviously, Drudge is onto many of our articles as well. Drudge has my article up today on how the cartels are slamming New Mexico because of the checkpoints being down. Now, today's show is going to be the asylum being run by the inmates, or put another way, the inmates running the asylum. <laughs> it's quite literally what's going on here. The inmates running the asylum, meaning the straight and narrow of a country of nationhood of law is flipped on its head. And everything that's done is always for the benefit of non-citizens at the expense of the citizenry. It's essentially our stolen sovereignty narrative, just with a twist to it. So obviously, we're going to link to this article in show notes where I interviewed a couple of sheriffs, I interviewed the head of DEA in El Paso to discuss how basically we have taken the alien desire for bogus asylum to such a degree 
that were willing to take down checkpoints, meaning rather than just say, look, no, if we're going to be forced to take down checkpoints, if we're going to be forced to release people, if we're going to be forced to have all these deleterious effects of drugs and gangs and all this empowerment of, of really bad things, no, we're not going to allow you in. And if you come in, we're either going to hold you in tent cities or we're going to deport you immediately. We're going to fly you back on planes. One of the big pieces of news over the weekend, no many of you sent this to me, now it's everywhere, is that um, Border Patrol is now flying people to, they're using aircraft to fly people to other parts of the border in order to house them. Okay, let's take a look at this article from the Texas Tribune. Overcrowding at Border Patrol stations in South Texas has become so acute in recent days that U.S. authorities have taken the rare step of using aircraft to relocate migrants to other areas of the border simply to begin processing them, according to three Homeland Security officials. The first flight left McAllen on Friday, transferring detainees to Border Patrol facilities in Del Rio. There are daily flights scheduled for the next several days, with two planned for Tuesday, according to officials who spoke on the condition of anonymity to describe the operations. The flights are conducted by ICE, but the detainees remain in the custody of Border Patrol, officials said. Though ICE routinely uses aircraft to move detainees among its detention facilities, it is very unusual for the Border Patrol to fly recent arrivals from one part of the border to another to perform routine booking procedures. Now, they basically go on to say that they're doing it in order to prevent catch and release. So they're doing it because... Until now, um, you know, they're letting go family units, but now it's so bad, they would have to let go um, single adults. They don't even have the room to process them, and therefore, therefore they have to fly them around to other facilities. Now, I understand that. So on the face of it, this wouldn't necessarily be egregious news. And if anything, you're saying, well, look, you know, if it's catch and release versus flying them around to other places, then this is better. But I, I want to read this to you. This is the end of the article here. Homeland Security officials view the direct release of single adults as a red line because they say the demographic group has the most potential to be deterred by enforcement action efforts. Carla Provost, the chief of Border Patrol, told lawmakers Wednesday that authorities would lose control of the border if they had to begin releasing single adults because that group is the only remaining demographic that can be detained and quickly deported. I mean, I, I don't disagree, but it's like, this is our red line. No, no, no. The red line should have been a long time ago releasing anyone, which is against law. The minute that you can't follow the laws because of so many people, that should have been the red line, and that should have induced an 1182F shut, shut off. Says like, oh, single adults we won't. But then, so so that's that's number one. That's my first critique of this. Just the fact that they recognize a red line. So why draw it there? All of this should be a red line. Number two is if you have the ability to take them into aircraft and move them around other places within America, why not take the aircraft and get them out of here? Either out of the country where we're not on the hook for it, Guantanamo Bay or some other place we own, or repatriate them. Meaning, here's what I understand. If you're telling me they're single adults, if you look at the data, most of them are from Mexico. Most of the single adults are, are still from Mexico, even though most of the family units are from, from Central America. So just push them across the border. Bus, walk, or, or flight. That's easier. I'm saying their whole spiel was that, oh, you don't understand. This is different. In the past, there were single adult Mexicans. We just repatriated them. Immediately, we turned them back. In this case, they're Central Americans. It's not so simple. And then a lot of them are family units. You have the court rulings. And then you have the logistics of the holding facilities aren't meant for them. But if you're telling me these are single adult Mexicans, why aren't we just turning them back? Why do we need to process? Why do we need to process? Just turn them back. We're closed for business. 
Now, I understand sometimes you want to process them because you get them down, and then a subsequent reentry is a violation of that, and that's a felony, a reentrant. But at this point, I mean, we just got to get, we just got to stop this. And, and again, th- th- this is the question I keep asking. Why should the American people be on the hook for this? Why should the consequence of them being so successful in their smuggling operations to get so many people be that therefore, you know, they're released or sent around America, not being, oh, so therefore we're going to, either way, we're up upending the base laws in our modus operandi. So why not use 1182F, which is a, an overriding law, to then just keep them all out rather than violate every law and violate sovereignty and bring them in? I mean, I'm going to keep drumming in on this. Things aren't getting better. They're getting worse. You know, we were wondering if maybe April at least plateaued. It's appalling, but it wouldn't get worse. No, I mean, we're almost halfway into May, and it clearly has gotten worse. It's reached a new level. It was about 4,000 a day coming over the border. Now it's it's been over 5,000. Washington Post reports here that... um, that's become the new normal in recent days. Over 5,000. So it's reached an entire new level. Each time the president has an opportunity to give an address to the nation and shut it off. But for whatever reason, I mean, I'm just going to tell you, Eliana Johnson, she reported, look, and, and this is an unnamed source, so it could be made up, but I'm just saying, reported that this official in the White House said, we're not worried about the immigration restrictionists because they've always been a fringe part of of the president's base. Really? These are the people you have working in the White House. That's the problem. The guy's got a clean house. Until then, we have the inmates running the asylum. They control what we do. Should never, ever be the case. I want to move on to discuss literally a case of inmates running the asylum. You know, harboring the English language as the glue that ties us together, e pubulus unum, from many there's one. It's always our language. English language, the American flag, Teddy Roosevelt, one of his last words he said days before he died, we have room for but one one flag, one language, and that's the English language. Yeah, we now have a federal judge in Florida mandating that 32 counties not just create bilingual ballots, which they're already doing, and they already have been doing, but all sorts of marketing and advertisements and assistance in bilingual ballots and voting. Okay. So there's a number of important lessons, a number of important lessons I want you guys to understand. And that's why I'm going over this case. It's a little, little, little naughty, so bear with me. So this, this was Friday. It was an Obama judge ordered the governor and the secretary of state to uh, all, all sorts of things to facilitate bilingual voting. Okay. This is, I'm trying to get where this is, just get the case. This is Judge Mark Walker of the Northern District of Florida. Now, just remember, this is the same judge who mandated felons voting. Okay, this was even before Florida passed the ballot initiative. He mandated it before that. So there was there was that issue. So... One of the things we've been talking about, in addition to immigration, we talk about election law, but election law often ties into immigration very closely, is that it was a power that was explicitly left to the states 
And it's been taken over, not just by Congress, but more so by federal judges. You know, I remember on this very program when Governor Ron DeSantis was running, he was running for governor, he was congressman back then, he was very proud of or looking forward to the opportunity he would have to appoint a number of judges to the state Supreme Court. And indeed he did since becoming governor. But if I remember correctly, at the time, I kind of said to him, like, look, you know, I understand, you know, you, you have that power, but just understand that every major issue, every issue of importance, they federalize it. They make a bogus federal claim because everything Democrats want to do is in the Constitution. And once it's in the Constitution, it's in the federal court system. So you could appoint whatever judges you want to the state courts, but any random federal judge could just screw with anything you want to do if we don't push back against the notion that judges aren't veto bodies and they're not legislatures. What they are and what they aren't. And I want to use this case as a superlative template for what is and is not the role of a court, the power of a court, the prerogative of a court, and the ability of the other branches and their responsibilities in the sphere of policy to push back against wrong decisions. Now, this case is a little bit complicated because there's law, there's statute, and there's a constitution. This is one case where there is a bad statute that needs to be repealed. But this judge took it a step further, and either way, the law is unconstitutional. number of ob- observations I want to make here. So, as a baseline, the judge is right, but he doesn't even cite this law. He cites a different one we're going to see in a minute. Section 203 of the Voting Rights Act in 1975, so remember, this was 10 years after the original passage. They updated it a couple of times, 75, 82, in the 90s. Recently, they keep it, you know, extending it. So, because, you know, it's so racial, all the Republicans just want to extend it because they're terrified to talk about the harms of it. And in 1975, they did pass Section 203 of the VRA, required bilingual ballots in certain circumstances. Totally unconstitutional law, and but it, it was passed by Congress. And basically, among other things, the baseline is that it requires jurisdictions, let's say counties, to offer bilingual ballots or, or ballots in the language of a minority language class if the census shows that there's 10,000 indivi- that there's more either more than 10,000 individuals or 5% of the population is of that ilk so in other words if in your district 5% of the voters of the voting no 5% of the voting age citizens not population but citizens are cambodian so then has you know in that Jurisdiction, it has to be done in Cambodian. If 5% are Spanish speakers, Vietnamese speakers, and Cambodian speakers, then you have to have those three languages. If it if it's none of them, then it's just English. Right? That's that's section 203. So you'd say, well, it's open and shut. Well, the, you know, Florida has a lot of places where clearly there's more than 5% that are Hispanic and that, that are Spanish language. So um um it's yeah, they they have to do it. Now, indeed, they are doing it. They have been doing it, and that's not a problem. Now, this same judge ruled last September that these 32 counties had to provide sample ballots. You know, like sometimes they send out sample ballots before the election. They have to be in Spanish, uh, Spanish. And then now he's saying that he's gonna babysit every aspect of the process for them, not just implementing bilingual ballots, which which they have already, and they've had for a while, but the advertising, the marketing, and all sorts of things, which we're going to get to. Now, why, why is he doing this now? What's the lawsuit? The lawsuit is from a bunch of Puerto Ricans who moved to Florida after Hurricane Maria. By the way, that's going to be a big challenge to win that state. Um, all going to vote Democrat. And because they're automatically American citizens, once they come to the mainland, they could vote. And they say, well, because they're not English proficient, 
Therefore, you got to do it. Now, the issue is this. Even allowing for the law, it's unconstitutional, but you know, let's just say it's, it's statute. So that only applies if you have the census telling you in these given areas it's more than 5%. We didn't have the new census yet. How could a judge unilaterally just arbitrarily say, hey, there's a lot of Puerto Ricans moving in. So what do you mean? I mean, is it 5% or not? I mean, so rather than using Section 203 of the VRA, which explicitly that's the one that requires bilingual ballots, he comes on to 4E2 of the VRA. Because that says that if people are coming from places whose predominant classroom language was other than English, then they must not, quote, be denied the right to vote in any federal, state, or local election because of his inability to read, write, understand, or interpret any matter in the English language. And in that statute, actually explicitly spells out Puerto Rico, among other places. So, you know, we have Puerto Ricans. So, in other words, I guess what he's trying to do here is say the way he's covered without the census provision is to say, well, this says straight up, you're Puerto Rico, you're not a uh, language provision, then you know you can't be discriminated against. So therefore, even without the census data, he can mandate. Now, the problem with that is that, yeah, but, th- but this statute is not about bilingual ballots. It says you can't deny them the right to vote. You're saying that denying the right to vote is tantamount to saying you must supply them with bilingual ballots and then market and advertise and yada, yada, all all these things done in Spanish. That's not synonymous. Think about it. You only have to be, let's just make up a number, 3% proficient in English to vote. Right? There's one level to speak a language. That's the hardest. That requires the most proficiency actually speak another language. Then there's to read it and understand it. And then there's, you don't need to understand anything. You know, for example, in the governor's election, there was a guy named DeSantis and there's a guy named Gillum. And especially we're talking about Spanish here because this whole injunction is for Spanish language. Spanish is very close to English. It's the same alphabet. So they could read DeSantis and Gillum. Okay, they could read that. They could read Trump and Biden, whatever. You fill out the bubble. You don't, you don't need, there's no like process. Okay, go here, jump in this hoop, and then, you know, that, that you need to understand the, the language. Okay, so it's not that hard. So not so actively, affirmatively supplying you is not a violation of that statute. Okay, that, that, that's nonsense. It never says you have to have bilingual ballots. It does say in section 203, but again, that has a formula, and he's not following the formula. So the judge is, aside from this bad law that needs to be repealed, along with the need to have an English language bill, a, a bill making English our official language, it's time we finally did, did that. It's an 80-20 issue. Why Republicans refuse to push that is beyond me. Because again, this speaks to the whole thing. Their whole thing is, everyone should be Americans regardless of race. And Yeah, we all agree. Exactly. So let's be Americans. Oh, these people are American as apple pie. They're going to learn English. They say this with all the amnesty, but but then they come, you know, in the in the next breath and say, "Oh, how are you asking them to speak English?" Well, I thought you said they all speak English. By definition, anyone who's a citizen should have to learn English. This was always the case, and that's it. Now, I'm not saying we should make a requirement like like a poll tax, like give you an English test. No, you could do what you want. You could go vote. No one's stopping you. But the notion that we have to go out of our way to print ballot, that's nonsense. Now, again, to a certain extent, that is in the law, but that law is unconstitutional. The law is unconstitutional because Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1 gives the states full control over this type of stuff, with the exception of just setting the date of the elections for federal elections, which is given to Congress, a couple other things, the 14th and 15th Amendments ensured that freed blacks get to vote. Nothing else like, oh, if you don't supply bilingual things, that's tantamount to not allowing blacks to vote. No, 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 no. Anything else is not in there. Senator Jacob Howard, all of them said very clearly that the second section of 
the 14th Amendment leaves the right to regulate the elective franchise still with the states and does not meddle with that right. Constitution never does that. So by definition, even if the VRA does that, the VRA is unconstitutional. So my first observation just off the bat is, we're always told that you could have an unambiguous, so you might tell me, well, Daniel, the law says it. Again, in this case, the law doesn't exactly say what he's talking about, and we're going to get to that in more detail. But um, you might say, well, you know, the law says that, so, uh, you know, in this case, the judge is just saying the law. It's not like these other cases. What's your problem? But just like you're telling me a, a, a judge could set aside an unambiguous statute if he believes it's unconstitutional, so too, even more, the stronger branches of government have the obligation to set aside a law if they believe it's unconstitutional. <laughs> I say this all the time. The entire rationale behind the judicial review is a proof to legislative review, state review, executive review. Meaning the whole point was everyone has to follow the law of the land and the Constitution. You swear an oath to the Constitution. Even judges, you might think they're unelected, so therefore they shouldn't have any say in this, but Marshall's point was, look, you know, they do swear an oath to the Constitution, and it would make their oath, quote, a mockery, he said in Marbury, would be a mockery if he were to ignore the Constitution. So he has to say, look, for our branch of government, for judicial purposes, we're going to view the laws the way the Constitution says. So, you know, I'm just saying, like, everyone understands that. So certainly there's no reason why Ron DeSantis or the Secretary of State could say, look, we view that states have the right and we don't see a need to have all this extra Spanish language paraphernalia in all these counties. Maybe we'll do it in some. So here's what we're going to do. But moreover, I, I want to I give you a further lesson. Even if the Constitution and statute was on, on their side, the ability and the power of a court to enforce it and the role of the court both in terms of standing, injury, in fact. Let's, let's go through a couple of things. We have a lot of observations I want to make off of this about the inmates running the asylum. So this clowny judge comes in and says, where is this? My computer is frozen now. The problem is I didn't print this out. And I'm trying to bring this up. But um, the judge conceded that the governor and secretary should be, secretary of state, should be lauded for initiating a rulemaking process to ensure compliance. So he, you know, he admits that they're they're complying with it. They're they're having bilingual ballots. Then he further admits that, quote, plaintiffs conceded, meaning plaintiffs, meaning the, you know, the Puerto Rican groups, that no record no record evidence exists of a citizen who falls within the ambit of sexual section 4e but who was unable to cast an effective ballot under the protocols established by this court's prior preliminary pre preliminary injunction so what what are you issuing more right what do you do where's the need where's the problem meaning let's say i don't like what government is doing i feel that they're not doing enough to comply with a certain law let's say and let's say i'm right let's say i have the law right Let's say I have the Constitution right. But judges don't like get up one day and legislate, right? They have to have a valid case. And then in the case, they issue judgment and grant relief to that plaintiff. So before we get into even the negative and positive actions and what is relief and what's not, what's a right, what's not, what's within the power of a court, but this is not even a justiciable case. And he admits it. But he says, nonetheless, because it's so important and, uh, it's necessary to have full supervision and we're going to get, we're going to use every power to like basically supervise this process. So that's one thing that's just, just off the bat. We become desensitized. Why am I the only one even qu questioning whether they have this power? Show me someone who's denied the vote and we'll talk about it. We'll have a case. There is no one. So what right do you have to get involved in this? But then there's another thing that cuts to the core of my entire thesis on the role of the judiciary and the power of the judiciary. A lot of people ask me, well, Daniel, are you suggesting we don't listen to the courts? And I always say, 
first of all, you know, in the right circumstance, yes. But this is not even not listening to the courts. The courts don't have that power. Let me give you an example of what not listening to a court would be. Okay? Um, the court says you don't have to, I don't know, you don't, you don't have to um, pay a fine. Government wants you to pay a fine. Government wants you to go to jail. Wants to throw you in jail. This is the executive branch of government. Wants to put you in jail. Wants to execute you. So they grant you relief. You aren't, you get relief from that. That's within the province of the judiciary. Right? To punish someone, you need to convict them in a court. Okay? So a court could say, ha ha, this is my power. I don't like your law. I don't like your policy. For our branch of government, we're going to set that aside. Right? That's what judicial review means. We're going to set that aside. So we're not going to convict you. But let's say I come in front of a court and I say, I want 30 days of early voting. I want bilingual ballots. I want a bunch of marketing material, marketing to the Hispanic community. Um, you know, ba ballots. Well, you're asking for a appropriations. You have to spend money on this stuff. And then the implementation, you that that's a positive action that actually requires funding. I mean, that's literally what Hamilton said. They have neither force nor will. They don't have the power of the person. They don't have the power of the executive. You're, you could suggest it. You could say, look, I believe that the Constitution and the law requires this. Here are some options for the best way of fulfilling that. But it's not an order. You can't order that unless you – I mean, it takes – the other branches to give it effect. It's not just a matter of, oh, the other branches aren't listening. That's That would be if they order, don't execute the guy. You don't listen, you execute them. Here, you're, you're asking them to spend money, hire county clerks, do all sorts of things. You don't have such power. If you believe the law compels us, so, so fine, so do it. But, but, but it's not because a judge has that power. A judge just doesn't have such power. It's unbelievable. But it's more than that. So it's not just, again, they're doing the ballots. So the judge issues like five pages of orders. A, B, C, D, all, all this stuff. The supervisor of elections shall, shall create a toll-free county-specific Spanish language hotline with at least one bilingual employee for the purpose of translating or otherwise assisting Spanish language voters during all early voting hours, hours when polls are open, and all hours during which voters can cure deficiencies with absentee or provisional ballots following election days and all business hours on other days. Additionally, the secretary shall direct supervisors of elections to visibly display at each polling place the availability of Spanish language hotline assistance, including the county Spanish language hotline number. I mean, that, that, that's literally like writing a statute. Meaning, meaning this is even worse than the, the false notion that a judge could strike down. That's bad enough. Here you're saying he could affirmatively legislate all sorts of random things that require personnel and funding. How does a judge do that? I mean, he could if he wants, but there's no power behind it unless the executive branch wants to, wants to do it. I fundamentally disagree that a court has this power. I mean, until this issue is solved, we don't have a republic. We don't have a country. The supervisor of elections shall provide in Spanish all official election-related written and electronic materials, including but not limited to ballots, absentee and early voting applications, envelopes, provisional ballot, envelopes and certifications, voter registration cards and applications, voting instructions. I mean, he goes on and on. Tons of stuff here. So shall provide Spanish language information on websites. And, and then you see you see what's going to happen here. They're totally complying with it. They're not like not doing, but he lists G H I J K. He's up to K. I got I, how many how many is that? What is that? Like 12 orders? 
So that opens up 50 million options for them to endlessly get standing to litigate that you're not doing enough. How do you run a country like that? Literally, it's like written like a statute. A through K, who orders, shall do this, shall do that. Supervisors of elections shall train all poll officials and other election personnel regarding the requirement of Section 40 of the Voting Rights Act. Shall recruit, hire, train, and assign bilingual poll workers who are able to understand, speak, write, and read English. And I, I mean, what what the heck? Supervisors shall continue to make good faith recruiting efforts to provide bilingual assistance, particularly for the benefit of those polling locations with a higher proportion of individuals who fall under the ambit of Section 4E. How in the world does a judge do this? So that's that's that observation. And again, the judge admits that nobody was denied, but it doesn't matter. Meaning, here's the deal. There's one thing, let's just say that the law says this, which as a baseline it does, with the right census formula. And let's say it's not unconstitutional, which it is. But even if it is, a, a judge doesn't have the right. It's, it's for the people to enforce that. You can't create all this criterion. Show me someone who's denied a, a bilingual ballot and we'll talk for a violation of the VRA. But um, even as this judge admitted that plaintiffs conceded that nobody was denied, he says, while this may be evidence that this court's prior preliminary injunction was not inadequate, this lack of evidence could also reveal that this court's measure did not go far enough. For example, perhaps the availability of Spanish language sample ballots was not known to citizens who fell within the ambit of Section 4E because the court did not order proactive advertising or marketing regarding the sample ballots. So therefore, they didn't know enough to even come. So the type of people who would who would have been denied didn't come because they didn't know. I mean, how in the world could we empower judges to do that? This is absurd. So that's that observation. So let's go on to our next observation because we have tons of observations here. Tons of them. Um, I'm going to forget even everything on my plate that I wanted to mention here. But isn't it interesting... Whatever happened to the anti-commandeering crowd? What do I mean by that? One of the things they do, as we always noted, is flip federal and state powers on its head. Because when it comes to these people, the only consistency is the outcome of their politics. There's no consistent principle. So remember how we're always told that, oh, no, 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 state, the federal government can't force states to enforce immigration law. Even when the states don't have to do anything, they're not placing some cumbersome, expensive program on them, some unfunded liability, just merely don't act as fugitives. Don't help fugitives, okay? So just don't block communications with ICE. Honor the detainer, just hold them for us. Ask the guy if he's a citizen, which was always standard anyway. There's no major program, right? We're not talking about actively um, helping the deportation process. That's 287G. That's voluntary. That, that was always voluntary, okay, if, you, if the states want to do it. No one's forcing 287G, but just simply not to impede. That is the essence of 8 U.S.C. 1373. And yet, a number of these same Obama liberal judges say, no, no, you can't do that. You're commandeering a state. You're, you're shoving on them this stuff. You can't do that. Even though this is a strict federal power, it's a necessary and proper clause of the Constitution that this is the only way to affect that. Meaning, remember, there's no. it's not like there's a federal land and there's a state land. 
the Fed, the the federal union is comprised of the 50 states. And if all the states played hide the ball, you, they wouldn't be able to enforce our national sovereignty. They wouldn't be able to accomplish and effectuate the outcome of one of their clear powers. Okay, immigration is a federal power. Yet, when it comes to election law, which is fully within the province of state powers, somehow there's no problem commandeering them, not just bilingual ballots, but evidently now that a judge could babysit them and mandate the creation of hotlines and and all sorts of bilingual staff and information and websites and stations and throughout every process of the election cycle, which is in perpetuity now. It goes from one to another. The early voting, the post-voting, it even has in there the order that the post-challenging of absentee ballots even after election day. So that's where we are with that. I just wanted you to understand, whatever happened to the unfunded liability of the states? How is that constitutional? See, this is the problem. This is why I always say it's heads we win, tails, or heads they win, tails we lose. There's no consistency here. The inmates run the asylum every time, all the time, fully, in every case. Our sovereignty, what's owed to us, our history and traditions are uprooted because they'll find one thing to uproot 10 other things and then they won't even be consistent about it. That's the core problem here. What happened to state powers? Then there's another interesting aspect of this. The irony is lost on liberals here. Section 203 of the VRA says that you have to give bilingual ballots if you you have a census that says what? That says what? That 5% of the jurisdiction's population of their, not their population, I'm sorry, of their citizen, of the citizens among the voting age are of that minority language speaker, whatever. So here you have a law implicitly saying that you obviously need to ask a citizenship question on the census to get that information. Think of the irony. That's part and parcel of the criteria for bi- bilingual ballots. Yet the same courts that 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 just you know zealously enforce bilingual b- ballot mandates somehow are gun shy when it comes not not gun shy. They go the other way. They say you're prohibited from asking the citizenship question. See, th- this is the problem: how we lose in all ways. Because it's like they'll take one aspect of law and exagger- of, of a law that's kind of bad and shouldn't have been passed. They'll exaggerate it by 100, and then they'll ignore 500 other aspects of it. So, like, this wouldn't be too bad if we zealously enforced our laws preventing illegals from voting, preventing non-citizens from being counted in the census. So, you know, you wouldn't have the weakening of our sovereignty on so many other fronts. Or if we're so into state powers, fine, but then you know other states could enforce the laws when they want, and certainly the federal government could enforce it. Oh, but we're so into states that California could do what they want. Okay, so then again, we wouldn't have the damage so often. But instead, it's the inmates running the asylum every time, all the time, fully. Even when it contradicts itself. The outcome is always racial politics. Whenever they could use racial politics and hide behind that with civil rights stuff, It screws us. And this is really the lesson with people who don't understand with um, conservative judges, so to speak, or at least a number of them, including Trump appointees. The worst aspects of the judicial supremacist garbage that they built up is all enshrined, as I noted in my book, in phony civil rights. It's so enshrined in identity politics, it's so enmeshed in identity politics that these guys don't want to mess with it. They just don't want to mess with it. It's that simple. 
You think they're going to go after this stuff? No. You think for a minute they're going to tell you that getting involved in racial politics with state um, election law over and beyond what the 14th and 15th Amendment actually did is unconstitutional? No. They're terrified. I mean, this is why just today you had the long-form ruling um, on that case where the Supreme Court stayed in execution because this this uh, Buddhist guy was denied his uh, uh, the right to um, have his Buddhist monk with him in the room, not just the viewing room of the execution chamber. And, you know, Roberts and Kavanaugh joined with the left. They're so concerned about religious liberty. No, they're not. Because, again, here's the inconsistency. They are refusing to grant cert to a number of plaintiffs throughout the country that have been forced by lower courts, state courts or lower federal courts, to service the homosexual agenda with their private property even after Masterpiece. And they're seeking Supreme Court review to overturn those bad decisions. And we can't get five justices. At, at, at least not yet. So at least one of the two, if not both, aren't too eager for it. In fact, it likely is both because it, it, it takes four, not five, to hear a case. So I would assume it's both. So that's an interesting thing. Why? Because one is identity politics. Ooh, there was a case of a Muslim and a Buddhist. Oh, but if you're going up against homosexual agenda, no, no, no. But again, that is real religious liberty. That's my private property. The right for them to have the monk in the room with their executor, that's not, that's not, that's not a real right. That's BS. You could agree or disagree about a policy, but it's not a fundamental right. This is what we have. Why has Congress not passed a law making English the official language of all government business and and repealing the bilingual language thing. Why? I just don't understand. It's such a winning issue. Everyone supports that. And the thing is, it's like, If you're scared of identity politics, you could shove it right back in their face. We're talking about citizens. We're talking, I mean, either they want non-citizens to vote or if you're talking about citizens because we're talking about voting, you're telling me you want to mollycoddle to the point that you're going to have this advertising of bilingual ballots for people that are citizens? I mean, I understand not every citizen is going to speak English flawlessly, but shouldn't we all agree that you should know English enough that you could handle a ballot and just fill out the bubbles of who you want to vote for? Assuming you so badly want to vote, you would know the name Trump, DeSantis, Biden, whatever. You know, again, if you're coming from the Spanish language, You'd, you'd recognize the name right away. It doesn't matter. It's the same language, same alphabet. Now, I guess if you're Chinese, maybe, I don't know how you would spell Trump in Chinese, but if you can't recognize the name Trump in English, even if you're not proficient in speaking English, then what are you voting for? I mean, like that should be obvious. Justice Louis Brandeis, he was the son of a German immigrant, He explained the most important manifestation of Americanization is when the immigrant, quote, substitutes for his mother tongue the English language as the common medium of speech. I mean, that that was the value we always had. And that was for immigrants in general, but certainly if we're talking about naturalization and then voting as a citizen, that was obvious you'd be at that stage. And that's the whole point. The the left, whenever, again, this is the inconsistency. Whenever they want us to agree on an amnesty proposal, they speak incessantly about the requirement to learn English. Yes, everyone's going to learn English and assimilate. And then whenever we call them out on it and say, all right, well, let's let's do this. Like, oh, are you racist? Well, what do you mean? I thought you said they're American as apple pie. 
But that's the thing. We're too scared. I mean, again, the Gingrich Congress, they were much stronger. H.R. 123, we don't benefit from even, you know, the good parts of people's jurisprudential idiosyncrasies. No. If you're like really into states' powers, it's only to benefit illegals or non-citizens against citizens or non-English speaking so-called citizens. It's always to hurt Americans, always to hurt our sovereignty. Every single time. Same thing at the border. Could be a hundred laws saying the opposite, but they'll take one thing in a vacuum, multiply it by a hundred. Oh, it voids out everything. Inmates running the asylum. Speaking of, but 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 anyway, it all gets back to identity politi- politics. Everything is identity politics. There's nothing that's not identity politics. Because the left knows that phony pseudo-conservatives and Republicans, that is their kryptonite. They die from it. Speaking of the inmates running the asylum, talk about intersectionality gold medals. The media suddenly doesn't want to talk about, they love talking about school shootings for gun control. There's one shooting they're not going to want to talk about. The Mexican father of the alleged Colorado shooter the STEM school, Alec McKinney, was jailed for domestic violence and deported twice with his son post- posting how he missed him just days before the atrocity. This is the type of garbage we brought in here. Jose Avis Quintana, the father of alleged 16-year-old killer Alec McKinney, this is from the Daily Mail, UK Daily Mail, was once jailed for 15 months for domestic violence against Alex's mother and menacing with a weapon. Um, he was deported twice, had a string of arrests in Colorado dating from 2008 to 2016. See, our laws are never enforced. Court papers show that despite Quintana's terrorizing Alex's mother, he managed to convince her to marry him in 2009, year before he was deported. Now, so we have a transgendered illegal son of an illegal alien. I guess the mother might be a citizen. I guess I guess that's what it was, but still. This is the garbage we bring in. So transgender illegal aliens? <laughs> They're not gonna want to talk about that. No, 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 no. They're not gonna want to talk about that. Another story. This is from News 4 Jacksonville, Nassau County, Florida. Attorneys for an illegal immigrant who ran from a Nassau County deputy who was hit and killed while crossing a busy road have asked the judge to dismiss the criminal charges stemming from the deputy's death. Investigators said Deputy Eric Oliver was hit and killed by a car in 2016 while chasing Francisco Portillo Fuentes across A1A in Yuli. Lawyers for Portillo Fuentes are asking a judge to dismiss their client's charges of felony murder and aggravated manslaughter. Defense attorneys have zeroed in on three concerns in the hopes of getting the case dropped. They claim that a federal agent involved in the case lied, that Oliver flouted traffic laws, and that the driver who struck Oliver was driving carelessly. Um, yeah. So... Now, not only do we allow these people to stay here and get our people killed, can't even land convictions anymore. And speaking of the devil, you know, and and I need help from y'all doing this. Let me know if you ever have time. Just uh, email me when you see these cases, but more Americans killed by illegals. Again, I'm just focusing on DUI manslaughter 
in California. Just over the weekend, I saw three more cases. Three more. Three more. They were terrible with multiple people killed in a few of them. People that were had tremendous criminal records and were let out of jail and went on to kill people with DUIs. I'm almost positive they're illegal, but like with the other cases we've highlighted recently, no one in the media locally has reported that. I have ICE requests in. We'll see what happens. But I'm just telling you, I don't even I don't even have the time to monitor all this. And this, this is the problem. There's no one looking out for Americans. There's nobody looking out for the fact that our checkpoints are taken down. What we're what we're we're entitled to. There's no lawyer for Americans. But every illegal, every pressure group gets to do what they want. I want to get more into the mechanics of what's going on. The danger of what is going on at the border. It's unbelievable. But I just want to end with this point. President Trump needs to assert power. The inmates only run the asylum if you allow them to run it. Often what happens, what the media does, what the political class does, what the Republican phony organizations and phony elected Republicans do is they create this sense of fear that, oh my gosh, there's going to be instability. Oh, you can't repeal Obamacare. There's going to be chaos. You can't change our foreign policy. There's going to be chaos. You can't do this. The lesson to learn from last week's discussion with Colonel Steiner, what we're, what Trump is doing right on Iran, is when you actually assert yourself and you just do it, it changes the dynamic. There's nothing to fear but fear itself. So, for example, what we see with Iran is Trump, Trump is cornering Iran more than they've been cornered in 40 years. That's very clear. There's maximum pressure... The sanctions are crushing them. He's growing the the um, force package in the uh, in in the Persian Gulf. There, I, I don't know if originally they didn't send the Patriots there, or they did, but they were reporting it and kind of piecemeal to ramp up the pressure on Iran. But there's a lot of opportunity and scary things going down, but. Everyone who's reporting on this Iran issue is noting that like Russia and China are kind of backing off. I mean, they would have told you in the past, oh my gosh, you can't assert yourself over Iran. It would cause a world war. Really? When we show how strongly we believe in something, that creates a reality. And it's the same thing with our border. The worst thing you could do is talk and complain and not do gradually do a couple of things that will take off the open borders people and get lawsuits, but then it doesn't do anything anyway. Just do it. Shut it down. Say we are not taking anyone anymore. He's losing the moral high ground every day he agrees to the premise that he has to deal with this, no matter how bad it gets. So I'm, I'm happy the president's listening, that he's aware of our work, I mean, I don't think he listened to the show. I think he was just retweeting the tweet that had the show in it. But still, um, you know, again, this was a lesson of, of moving the embassy. For 20 years, they said, you can't move it. Do you understand the issues it would create? But um, he moved it and that's it. Everyone backed down. B-52H Stratford Fortress bombers were deployed to the Middle East to deter Iran. So um, there's a lot going on. Maybe we'll bring Colonel Dan back on. That's something we're going to watch carefully. We're going to talk more about the cartel national security implications of what's going on in our border. We're going to continue focusing on the courts. We're going to learn a lot about Kavanaugh, maybe a little bit about Gorsuch as the Supreme Court term really reaches a feverish culmination in its final month. A lot of stuff is going to come out. But the point is, we cannot get caught up 
in this drumbeat of, oh, we're required to do this. Illegals have this right, this right. No, no, no. We have to know what's a real right, what's not a real right. What the Constitution says and what it doesn't say. What's the role of this branch of government and what's the role of another branch of government. It's time we stop allowing the inmates to run the asylum. Thank you all for listening. God bless y'all. Till tomorrow. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. Conservative Conscience.